I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack. It's Lockie here. I am at the chair at the moment of an elite team. Uh, We have the very lovely Charlie White, who's taken some time away from her foodie stress. It sounds like stress, although I've been in some of it. It's not very stressful if you're there at the foodies festival. You get fed cake, lots of it. Um, Boaty Chris is also in the house, but Charlie, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Hey, it's just nice to be... uh getting somebody else feeding me for a change being off the road for sure um your food is delicious i recommend everybody go to the foodies festival and have some of the cakes made at the uh, bakery tent that that charlotte's running chris uh, is not on a boat at the moment how are you chris i'm doing very well a strange experience to have dry feet (laughs) <laughs> um who's also yeah been running tours out into the medway and out into the thames and into the estuary it's been i've been, done one of them as well and they are epic epic fun um the story today is boaty and it is very soggy indeed it's under the water uh in fact charlotte what's the story Well, I'm really excited about this one. We are joined today by Dr. Benjamin Redding, who is a senior research associate in maritime history in the School of History at the University of East Anglia. His book, The English and French Navies, 1500 to 1650, Expansion, Organisation and State Building, was published in January 2022. And he's contributed to many other works in his specialist fields covering the rise of state navies in early modern military history and maritime culture in Tudor and Stuart, Britain. Today, Ben's joining us to discuss his research into the career of the Gloucester and, more importantly, the events surrounding its shipwreck. Though the discovery of the shipwreck may be new news to the public, Ben has spent the last three years investigating it, and he's here to tell us what we know about it so far. So, hello, Ben. Hi there. Thanks for having me. We're really excited to talk about the Gloucester. This is some seriously interesting discoveries you've got. 
I'm excited to talk about it. It's quite strange after all this time that I'm kind of allowed to let the secret out, so to speak. <laughs> but it's uh, it's great and it's great to be here and, and finally be able to really talk about all things Gloucester. Fantastic. I mean, it's a pretty big thing to hide, but let's dive straight in, so to speak, and talk about the discovery of the Gloucester beneath the Norfolk waves. What's so special about this shipwreck? Well, I think kind of if I, if, if I was to ask what's the unique selling point here, I would say that actually this isn't just a shipwreck. And that's why it's kind of quite important. This wasn't just a warship that was kind of off the sea and gets lost in battle. This is, we, we, of course, it is that, but it's also so much more because that it was also used to transport James Duke of York, the future heir to the throne, from, from London to Edinburgh. And so it's also a royal shipwreck. It, and that's what I think is really exciting here. We, we've got, I think that's what makes it unique. I, I, I'm absolutely fascinated by this. Um, I, t- from having the little bit that I know about it, it just sounds like such a what if kind of almost like a sliding doors kind of moment, um, really. But what about the Gloucester herself, first of all, just before we get into kind of the sinking and the events around it, what what was the Gloucester what kind of ship a big ship small ship sailing ship presumably <laughs> yes there's no motors at this point um so yes it, it really quite a sizable ship so it's known as a third rate frigate um and actually this is kind of the the type of warship you'd want to be really uh to be used throughout your fleet in battle because they were they could hold a large amount of guns this kind of warship would have held between 50 and 60 heavy cannon um but, it, but so quite a large ship, but also it's quite nimble and easy to kind of manoeuvre around the seas. So it's it's kind of in many respects a kind of state of the art uh, warship. So very useful in that respect. And um, what's really interesting about the Gloucester is that it has re- a, a long, lengthy career. Of course, the selling point here is what happens in 1682 when when it with the shipwreck itself. But Gloucester is around in, in from 1654 when it's launched all the way until 1682. And it has a really active career. It, it's involved in the Anglo-Dutch Wars, both the Second and Third Anglo-Dutch Wars. I know a few weeks ago you had a, um, you had a podcast on the back of the Salt Bay as an example. Mm-hmm. Gloucester's there for that. Um, and, and so it is a really active warship. Uh, it, I also find a particular interest here is um, the, the, when the Gloucester's launched, one of the very first things it does is sails over to the Caribbean. It's it's involved in what's known as the Western design, Oliver Cromwell's Western design, where it, it stays in Barbados for quite a while, ta- attempts to attack Hispanola, and eventually the English settle with Jamaica, get, taking that off the Spanish. And the Gloucester's there for almost two years. So right from the outset, the ship being launched, it's a really active warship. And actually, that makes it a really important warship kind of for the history of England and later Britain. Was it always called Gloucester? Because I know that a lot of Cromwell's ships were renamed in honour of the royal family. So I wondered if it was named after uh, Henry, Duke of Gloucester. Right. So, yes, you're nearly there with this. So as it was launched in 1654, it was part of a wider uh, wider shipbuilding scheme in which many warships at the time were named after big civil war battles parliamentary victories um, and the gloucester was one of those so it, it was it was named after the 1643 siege of gloucester uh, a, a parliamentary victory uh, we think 
the reason why it isn't renamed in 1660, and you're quite right, many of the warships are, the reason behind this is probably because of Henry Duke of Gloucester. Um, that, that the, one of the warships, the Master Moor of, of the Cumberland period, is renamed. It's renamed York after James Duke of York. It's most likely that in the case of Gloucester, the reason why it's not renamed is because, yes, it, it's named after Charles's younger brother. <coughs> We've um, we've talked about other ships of this period on uh, on the podcast before, like um, Royal Charles uh, and HMS London that blew up off in the uh, estuary. How does uh, Gloucester stack up compared to those two? Well, both of those warships are were larger than the Gloucester for a start. They, I believe, um, I believe the Royal Charles was a first-rate frigate, uh, and the um, and the, and the London was a second rate. So they, they were both larger, an extra gun deck, more guns. Um, that, that in itself is interesting because it usually meant that a larger ship would be more expensive to run, operate, and so therefore it's at, it's, it's at sea less frequently. Um, so that's something to bear in mind there. Gloucester would have been used more for, for that reason. It's cheaper to run. Um, th those warships were kind of the... Um, I guess you call them like the flagships, so to speak. They they were the the big big obstacles in in war that were there to attract attention, and that you'd often get kind of the admirals clashing between. Um, I guess the point of comparison, both of those warships have tragic ends in the same way Gloucester does, of course. Uh, Royal Charles, of course, with the Battle of Medway. If you call that a tragic end, it it, it then of course um, it stays in the Dutch Republic for the rest of its life. And um, of course, the London tragically explodes on the Thames. So they, they all have kind of tragic endings in that respect. Uh, what makes Gloucester different, though, is its third rate. It's slightly smaller, would be used more. It's kind of a more, more of a nimble weapon of war in that respect. It's a little runaround, the Gloucester. <laughs> <laughs> punchy runaround, I, I want to say. It's almost like a, <laughs> you know, like a quick cruiser or something, isn't it? Um, it, it, it with this said, there were still certainly many warships that were a lot smaller than it that would even be even more kind of quick and nimble. But there were, were reports when Gloucester was launched, actually it's quite a fast ship that can, can sail quickly. And that, that was reflected on when it was crossing over to the Caribbean. It, it was perceived that way as a, a, a good sailor. Well, let's let's jump in on on kind of what she had on board then at the time of her sinking because it doesn't get much more high profile than James Duke of York heir to the throne, does it? Um, I mean, because really he's only ranked second to the king himself. Um, there must have been a lot of fancy stuff on board, mustn't there? Did he have any personal belongings and valuable things? You'd certainly think so, yes. So first thing to, to, to reflect on with the, with the Gloucester sinking is that it was actually packed, really packed with people. It had a, a full crew of kind of around 260 to 280 crew. In, and in addition to that, it has lots and lots of passengers, royal passengers, courtiers such as John Churchill, George Legg. And then, of course, all their servants as well. So loads and loads of people on board, very packed and busy. And you'd expect people of this kind of class to, yes, indeed, bring in many of their valuables so that they could live in style on board. Um, and one thing we are particularly interested in with the Gloucester shipwreck is trying to uncover that. 
this stern castle of the ship is still under under sand and we believe that that is where James Duke of York would have been staying at the time so that's kind of a real kind of hopeful moment for the future that because that the stern the stern castle of the ship is still under the sandbank that that's probably where loads of those nice fancy kind of items are kept to pursue for the future why was James Duke of York going to Scotland um why was the Gloucester chosen to take him there so it's actually part of a much bigger issue that kind of sweeps over Restoration England and is connected to the exclusion crisis and the Popish plot at the time. So really why James is going, you have to, to understand why he's going to Scotland, you had to step back several years earlier. Uh, James had converted to, to Catholicism uh, at some point in the early 1670s and it was made public knowledge by 1673 when uh, he is forced to resign as Admiral because of his Catholic faith. People had to denounce mass in order to hold public office at that time, and James refused to do so. So he was a, he was a very public Catholic. And that's important because in the late 1670s, we have what's called the Popish Plot, where there was a mass amount of hysteria and conspiracy that Catholics were out to kill the king. And the result was a bigger issue called the Exclusion Crisis. What the Exclusion Crisis meant was that James, who was the next in line to the throne, was a Catholic. And he they attempted to remove him from the line of succession for his Catholic beliefs. Uh, there were many prominent individuals within Parliament who refused to, to kind of harbour the idea of a Catholic taking over the throne of a Protestant country. And the exclusion crisis attempted to pass a bill to remove James from the line of the throne and probably to put in his place Charles II's illegitimate son, James Scott, the Duke of Monmouth, who was a Protestant. Um, and in 1679, as a way to kind of attempt to relieve the crisis, to, uh, to kind of let things simmer, Charles essentially forces his brother to, to move to Edinburgh and to reside there. And on and, off, on and off the next three years, that's where James and his family remain. And that, it, that stays that way until March 1682, when Charles invites only James back to England as a way to kind of test the waters, because he believes that this crisis has kind of finally ended and that uh, Parliament had almost been defeated and that James would now be accepted as the heir to the throne. So in March 1682, James arrives in, in England alone. They, he first meets his brother at Newmarket and it seems he's well recepted and then travels to London. And only when he's in London, Charles says, OK, we seem confident here that things should be OK. And that's when the, the Gloucester is requested to actually bring James back to Scotland because his wife's still there, his pregnant wife at that, and his and his daughter Anne as well. And so James was actually going to Scotland to kind of settle all affairs there and to collect his family because he was finally going to be able to reside permanently in England again to become the future King of England. It's also helpful that Charles had sent his Parliament home in, in 1681 and hadn't called them back, so he wasn't getting so much hassle on that. So he could probably afford to see his brother again. 
Absolutely. Although perhaps reluctantly, they certainly had a relationship that uh, was one of kind of conflicting personalities, shall, shall we say. Um, the very fact that Charles, who is, of course, known as the Merry Monarch, quite laid back. The fact that he was willing to dissolve Parliament uh, during the exclusion crisis reflects really just how bad the situation was. Um, it, it really could have ended quite differently for James. All right. So the the ship is requested. Um, where did it where did it sail from? So there's an interesting story here with the Gloucester because it had very recently been refitted, almost rebuilt. Um, it had been in dock for almost three years in the late 1670s, which had finished it by mid to late 1680, um, and that that rebuild had it took place in Portsmouth. Right. Um, and in by late 1681, early 1682, there's talk of, hey, let's actually use this warship. They're, they're not officially at war at this point, although there's certainly kind of tension with Catholic France. Um, and it's decided that the Gloucester is going to be fitted for sea. But the initial idea is not to use it for this idea of going to Scotland. The idea is that it's going to travel to the Mediterranean. It's um, it's going to be used to as a part of a kind of convoy to protect Tangier, which at this time was part of is an English territory. Um, and Captain Sir John Berry is selected as its captain. And it just has so happens that at this time, as Gloucester is preparing for sea, when it's just about ready to be launched, James needs a taxi. And so <laughs> it's... <laughs> And it's quickly kind of uh, changes course, shall we say, and takes place in this world. It takes part in this world progress instead. It's almost by chance that it happens. So I'm I'm kind of thinking about this. Like, what what is the kind of ship you would want for for something like this? And it's it's got to be, you know, it, this is small fry, isn't it? This is this is small potatoes. This journey. This is a ship that sailed the Atlantic at least twice. Um, it's seen action off the coast of East Anglia. So, the, you know, this is territory that the, the kind of people know well, uh, of course. Um, how in the world does it end up sinking off the coast of Norfolk? You're quite, you're quite right. I mean, it's almost bizarre that this warship would be used for this kind of trip. Uh, and the fact that it is is a reflection of actually how important this voyage is for James because he's making a statement that he's back (laughs) (laughs) it's this big statement of of that he's defeated those who tried to oust him from from the line of succession and they therefore using this large third-rate frigate is a statement of 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 that it's it's powerful and of course gloucester wasn't alone a a, a small squadron also accompanies the ship we have the dartmouth the pearl the ruby several yachts all accompanied gloucester on this trip um, and and I think that's partially the reason why the Gloucester's selected. It's a large warship that's that's just been refitted for sea. James, by being on board, can make this statement of I am I am powerful and I'm I am back. Uh, I, I think that's particularly important. Strangely enough, though, using a third rate probably isn't the best decision. It's, it's usually much smaller craft that sail over to to um to Scotland, partially because of the kind of conditions and the climate, the weather, but also because of various sandbanks and having to navigate around them. Having a warship that's really quite a lot of a large side is quite dangerous because of various sandbanks that has to navigate around. It's, there's always a potential that it could 
strike one of these sandbanks because of kind of the large um, holding of water that it displaces. Uh, and lo and behold, look what happened. Yeah. I mean, putting putting James as the former Lord High Admiral, I guess for, for him having a ship of that calibre, it, it sort of reinforces a little bit of his his seafaring status, doesn't it? That That's right. And that's one thing I think we often forget about James. We think of him first as kind of a, almost a bad monarch, mm. but he was actually really quite passionate about the Navy. And when he was forced to resign in 1673, you can imagine it was done really reluctantly. He, he, he was passionate about the sea and was one of the individuals who was keen to kind of institutionalize it to set out various rules and regulations for for conduct um he 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 is a he is a future king who actually who's who's on the battlefield of at Sol bay and and it, so it reflects that he's someone who really is interested in the navy um and i have no doubt that with him returning to power in 1682 he was also quite hoping that it would also result in his influence over the navy also kind of developing and there's no surprise that when he becomes king in 1685 one of the first acts he does is actually to to reinvent himself as a lord high admiral again yeah i always wanted to be in the room when when charles grounded him after i think it was the battle of lowestoft when three men got exploded with the same cannonball next to james and he has to ground him because he's his only heir and I just imagine this this real seafaring guy who's been he's been titular Lord High Admiral since he was five. So he was he's been born for this to be grounded by his big brother. I just always imagine this being a real source of tension between the two of them. That's right. And it's probably got interesting parallels with, of course, what happens in the exclusion crisis when essentially Charles grounds them again to Scotland. Um, <laughs> but you, you can sense the kind of fraught relationship that these two two had. Um, it, 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 you, that's a really good, interesting case you provided there with, with, with Lowestoft. And it does reflect that although James is very experienced at sea, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's kind of the best at sea. And he was he had many, he had many critics. As, as an example, at the Battle of Sol Bay, James is forced to swap ships three times during the battle. Um, and, and he's criticised as actually being too slow to act when, when he's kind of rem- removing himself from one ship and going on to the other. Um, he, he, he was someone who, who, who had a strict perception of how the navy should operate that his rule and order and how and how the how the navy should be organized in line of battles that 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 his word should be of paramount importance and no one should ever cross him in that and it's perhaps a a a view that really was quite misleading and uh inappropriate because uh it, it led to many criticisms and it reflects on a concept of kind of the ship of state if this is a monarch and this is how he controls his navy um how would he be when comes 1685 when when he has that kind of iron grip over the kingdom himself if if he's trying to state that uh the navy should operate to his to the click of his fingers is that going to reflect indeed on how he rules in 1685 and indeed perhaps it did because of course he was seen as kind of an absolutist monarch in the way that Louis XIV wished to be kind of viewed in kind of universal monarchy. 
So looking at the sinking then specifically, the fact that he did have this status and this connection with the Navy, um, is there a, a kind of element of, of hubris to the sinking in the sense of a, an I know best, we're going this way sort of sort of way? And then when, you know, things you know, do, when they do strike the sandbank, is it an immediate kind of, oh, got that wrong, right, better get all the important stuff and all the people off kind of thing and let's let's manage this in a responsible way or is there any more kind of, well, we're just going to truck on regardless? This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I, I think know, knowing James as we do now, uh, he was very unlikely to kind of put his hands up and go, yep. Yeah. It was my fault, my blunder. Kind of so thing. actually, it was quite the opposite in that as what actually happened. Uh, you, we, and really, James, in many respects, was to blame for, for the events that occurred before Gloucester strikes the sandbank. Uh, so they are travelling on the Gloucester and they, they hit a particularly n- notorious set of sandbanks off of uh, the North Norfolk coast. And they're known as being particularly dynamic as well. These sandbanks constantly changing their appearance and movement over time. And they're not very well kind of um, charted on the maps. Um, Traditionally, a smaller vessel would kind of hug the coastline, uh, follow Great Yarmouth. And they they would do that largely because they can see kind of the um, they can see clear natural kind of uh, satellites to detect where exactly they are. They can see some banks and they can see churches and they can see um, various beaches. And through that, they can they know exactly where they are. That's usually what a pilot would like to do. But because the Gloucester was a larger warship, they were concerned that travelling so close to the coastline would actually result in it perhaps kind of grounding on 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 the on the narrow uh, on the shallow seas. And so there was an argument that took place on the evening before Gloucester wrecked on on the 5th of May. And the argument was over which course it should take. The pilot still wanted to hug that coastline. Uh, James thought that was much too risky with such a large warship. And he thought they should actually kind of um, sail in between some of the sandbanks. Whereas the master of the ship, who was called Benjamin Holmes, who really actually had a, should have overall say in things because as, as navigator of the ship, he wanted to sail as far out as possible, completely missing all the sandbanks, and then kind of once they're cleared, then to kind of come back closer to the shore. Uh, that was a big argument, and you could probably guess who got their way at the end. It was James. <laughs> so uh, that that decision is made that they're going to try and take that middle middle route. Uh, but when the decision is made, everyone decides to go to bed. 
James included, they go to bed only leaving the pilot who didn't wish to take this route to um, to lead that course. And it didn't end well, as you can see with the announcement recently made of the discovery. Uh, it did indeed hit one of the sandbanks in the early hours in the morning. So in that respect, you can say maybe James was to blame for that. He he kind of decided that, that final that final route to take and then went to bed. <laughs> so and, and, and so in many respects, it, it, it was his fault. And another point to kind of point the finger at here with James is that when the ship does strike the sandbank, it's, it would usually be protocol for as for James as the most senior official on board to decide now we need to abandon ship. But James didn't abandon ship until the very last minute when it was going down. He felt that the ships could still be saved. And because of protocol at the time, no one else could leave the ship until James left the ship. And so it was. It took 45 minutes from the ship striking the sandbank to it sinking. And James didn't leave for over half an hour. And so really, in many respects, the, the, the scale of casualties was a result of him. Wow. How many people lost their lives, do we think, on the... In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Gloucester. So numbers are varied because there is no, unfortunately, there's no muster list that survived. Uh, muster list would have been held with the purse of the ship from the time. And so it would be very soggy now, shall we <laughs> say. <laughs> um, but records suggest that the crew was around 260 people. And uh, on, in addition to that, there were a large amount of passengers and servants. We suspect that this was probably in the range, therefore, around 330 and 350 people on, on the Gloucester at the time. And um, over half of those would have lost their lives on board. Uh, we have records for at least between 60 and 70 crew who, who, who died, whose names we actually have. Um, it, and that's in addition to a large amount of servants and to uh, many high status individuals, nobles, the Earl of Roxburgh that died on board. Several uh, Scottish nobles and gentry members died um, as, as well as their servants. And you said John Churchill, the future Duke of Marlborough was on board as well. But he-, he was. So he was at this time James's right hand man, essentially. And um he, he, he accompanied, accompanied James and um, was with him in, on the rowboat when they kind of depart. Jack, Jay, uh, John Churchill was there to, to protect James. He raised his sword to ensure, to ensure that no one else climbed on his little rowboat with James on board in an attempt to kind of topple it over. Um, when it's saying, oh, it's, it's, it, it was a very dangerous event. And... Uh, John Churchill was essentially kind of saving his prince. It was kind of some, it was an honourable thing he would have perceived it to do. But uh, yeah, it's it's quite vile in many respects and uh, a lot of lives were lost because of it. Gosh, I wonder if uh, things might have turned out differently for James if uh, John Churchill had gone down with the ship as well. 
<laughs> well, there, there are arguments that still exist today that this event may indeed have triggered something in John Churchill's mind that resulted in kind of turning in 1688. You know, he, he saw James at this, at this this time and so it seemed fairly vulnerable and reflected that this actually probably isn't the best of leaders. It probably would have influenced what happened in, in 88 because clearly people's lives could have been saved if James had acted differently at this point, even if he wasn't indeed the sole kind of individual who's culpable for the disaster. And what exactly sort of inspired the search specifically for Gloucester? I mean, we, like we said, there's there's shipwrecks all around the country, literally everywhere. Why, why exactly did you guys go for, for Gloucester? And uh, how about how, how did you go about finding her? So the Gloucester was discovered uh, in 2007 by brothers Julian and Lincoln Barwell and their friend uh, James Little. And they'd actually been looking for the ship for around four years. Um, they they have a great passion for diving on historic shipwrecks and, and had generally been used to kind of diving on kind of 20th century shipwrecks generally. And then one day, uh, Lincoln Barwell uh, had this book on historic shipwrecks and found a reference to, to the Gloucester and the word cannon and got excited by the idea of, a royal shipwreck and so and then off they went and they they, they attempted it took four years i believe it was around five thousand nautical miles in attempt to discover it so it took quite some time and then one day yes indeed they they got i guess we could say lucky i guess you say well they they kind of worked relentlessly to discover it and yes they and, and they did indeed and i believe the first site they you know they saw this and then if you've seen the image that's been released of the uh, of the sea on of the sites, you see all these fantastic cannon all scattered around. And yeah, I think, I'm sure they got extremely excited immediately there. Yeah, no, I would be. Believe they're big brass cannons. So uh, that's actually yet to be determined on some because with, with these cannons, they haven't brought any up. <laughs> they're particularly heavy, and at the moment, uh, the only kind of items that have been recovered have been rescue archaeology and and usually uh cannons will survive the test of time it would appear at least at the moment um we it's most likely that there would be both brass and iron cannon down there as that was the system at the time uh it's also most probable that some of these cannon were really quite old um some that it, it would not surprise me if some of them range on 60 70 years of age and that that would be the kind of bronze ones most probably most probably yes i mean it's really exciting to see things coming up and you know like the the bell which was the 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 sort of almost like the id tag that that told you it was the the gloucester um what What's been brought up so far? Is there anything really cool that's come up so far? And um, what does it tell us about who was on board this ship other than the hoi polloi? Yes, so first you're right. So the bell was used to identify the the ship as Gloucester. It has 1681 on it. So, you know, it's pretty firm evidence there. And, of course, back then the calendar 1681 could have could have gone all the way to march 1682 when the new year officially started so that's really quite nice evidence there um to confirm um and that bell we believe was made by the uh Wainwright brothers in london so it's got a lovely mark on it mm-hmm. um and is, is a really beautiful piece uh so i i for me some of the most interesting finds are probably to do with the wine that's been discovered uh 
which again is not something you usually expect to find with a warship, which kind of reflects <laughs> that this was far more than that. Uh, so far, around 150 bottles have been rescued from the ship, so 150 wine bottles, which really reflects that they were having a good time on board. And My really kind of ship. <laughs> exactly. Yes, we've, we've said it's essentially a party ship in many respects, which it, which it was. Strange to celebrate in being returning finally. Um, yes, so there's 150 wine bottles are thereabouts recovered so far, and around 30 of them still have the original wine content in. Uh, and not only the wine contents, they have what's what we, a new word for me. They have what's called the ullage, which is the air, the airlock in, in the bottle, which means that the wine hasn't been contaminated either. And so that's the kind of thing that really interests me and excites me. Because so we have not only 17th century wine, we have 17th century air as well. <laughs> Are you a booze historian as well? Ben? <laughs> I should be. This is something coming up. It's <laughs> as long as it comes with free samples. Yeah. Do you think we could? I mean, could we, in theory? I mean, obviously, a small select group, basically us four. Could we, in theory, taste that wine? Well, I've been told it's probably not the best of ideas because the the wine is quite low alcohol percentage because they were drinking so much of it. It was around 5% back then, and now it's only around kind of 1%, 2% as it's gone over the years. And so because of that, uh, it's probably not going to – it's going to give you certainly a poorly belly, shall we say, (laughs) when drinking it. But that doesn't mean it's not useful for us. Where hopefully in the future scientific research can do such like tell us where the wine comes from, what country does it originate from? That's something that really interests me yeah. because you, when we think of wine, we usually think of kind of French wine as kind of the state of the art example, and it, it it was associated that way then. But in 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 the late 1670s and early 1680s, French wine was actually banned in England for its association with Catholicism. So what I'm really interested to find out is, is this wine still French wine? And something tells me James wouldn't really have cared. And it's quite possible that they would have still been drinking French wine and kind of bending the rules, shall we say. One rule for them, another rule for 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 us. (laughs) Um, So that to me is really exciting and what kind of can come out of this shipwreck. Uh, So, yeah, the wine to me is the most exciting find. But, of course, there are many other objects uh, a lot of work has gone into two chests that have been found down there and we've been working to try and identify whose kind of chest this would have been mm-hmm. who would have, um so we, we've got stuff like navigational tools dividers that have come for it but they're also clothes shoes a woman's hood that's been discovered and so there is so much to kind of get out of these and yes it's interesting what's been recovered so far and what hopefully these items can just can tell us but in the future, through net, through research, but also we've got to be excited about what's still down there because this ship was so packed with people. Um, there's got to be a lot of really interesting stuff that would tell us things we've just never known before. How was it? How was a warship packed when it had royals and nobles on board? What would they have carried? They're not carrying backpacks, of course. They, these kind of these are the kind of questions that hopefully the Gloucester will really open their eyes to in the future. Gosh. Wasn't one of the wine bottles marked with a, a rather interesting family crest for our American listeners? That's right. So uh, we believe it has the crest of the Washington family on. 
and uh, one of the passengers on board was George Legg, who was, if you can't consider John Churchill to be the right hand man of James, George Legg was the left, and um, <laughs> and he he's a really important individual actually, who even in 1688 sides with James, and he's actually the the, the admiral who uh, controls the English navy when William Orange is crossing the Channel. So uh, he's quite an important historical figure. And George Legg, uh, his mother was Elizabeth Washington, uh, who was an ancestor of, of course, George Washington, the president of the United, first president of the United States. Um, and yes, we have this lovely bottle that has this crest, which we believe to be that Washington, um, that 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 Washington crest. And to, to kind of further reflect on that. George um, George Legg, he actually integrates the Washington crest into his own coat of arms anyway. So it is a kind of symbol of him. We've heard that the um, the, the wreck itself has been described as kind of like the single most significant historic maritime discovery since the raising of the Mary Rose. Um, from what you're saying, this sounds like quite a fair comparison. Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. In ways, it's unfair to compare it to the Mary Rose because it's so different. Of course, you know, it's a warship that sinks nearly 150 years later but uh but but most importantly it's, it's that royal dimension that, that makes it really really exciting right uh, as a naval historian i can't wait to find out what this warship can tell us about how how ships were constructed uh, what kind of equipment they had on board uh you know what 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 what, what were in the chest perhaps of the officers uh, the uh, such as the captains and the pilots those kind of things are really exciting to uncover but we also have to reflect that actually this isn't just a naval find. It's, an, it's a find of significant importance to politics and culture. Um, and, and so it, I believe it does certainly deserve its place in being compared to the Mary Rose for that reason. What sort of condition is it in? I mean, is it, is it comparable to um, the, the Mary Rose in terms of the, the state that it's in? Is it, is it going to be... I don't know. Are you going to float the thing? Uh, is it coming up? <laughs> so future re- research and funding obviously will help us to kind of answer this question. And so at the moment, there is no direct answer on um, on whether the ship can be fully recovered. Of course, a maritime historian, I've got to keep my fingers crossed. Um, but but we will, I guess we will see uh, is the true answer on that. It, it would be fantastic if it could, of course. Let, let's see. A trust has currently been established under Lord General Richard Dannett, and uh, that will kind of help to push that forward to really for us to be able to tell hope in the future what is possible. Uh, as to the state of the the wreck as it stands, my understanding is it's probably quite comparable to 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 the Mary Rose. Think of it as an open book, and you can see what it's kind of various decks. It's laying flat, and you, uh, I, I think it is quite similar in that way, um, kind of. Part, part of the um, the ship has corroded over t- has decayed over time, but it's left the ship open, very much like the Mary Rose is. Wow. Gosh, it's, it's fantastic. We actually asked our um, we've we've got another a boaty friend at History Hack, the um, the historian J D Davis, who's written about Pepys's Navy and written about the the navies of um, of Charles II. And he told us the wreck of the Gloucester isn't just a fantastic time capsule of the restoration period. It undoubtedly changed the history of the British Isles. It's just such an exciting project to be a part of. 
and indeed that quote reflects not just on the ref but actually how important this ship is to, to the history and its career as mentioned earlier with the western design as an example it, it's really exciting i'm certainly very lucky to kind of be on board on this journey but um i think this this warship has a, a lot of potential and hopefully become a major cultural heritage point for the future in terms of cultural heritage i mean i'm I'm now thinking, I'm still thinking about our wine, Ben, if I'm honest with you. And I'm thinking about the swag that must be down there. So what what will happen to these artefacts when they're brought up? Who who owns them technically and will will we get to see them? I was thinking, I was thinking so, cause, I mean, is it like anything on land and the British Museum would get first shout, wouldn't it? I don't know if it quite works the same way at sea or not. So technical policy is that these objects remain the, the property of the Ministry of Defence. So it's kind of very heavily political in that respect. Um, but if in the future through research we find certain items and we can trace those items to a, a specific individual, let's say, let, for example, the leg bottle is an example, um, then then those items become the crowns and then they could be in discussions or actually be returned or discussed with their relatives. Um, so that's kind of where that goes. Uh, as to the actual objects that so, so that have been discovered so far, uh, the big plan is that in February 2023, a exhibition will be held at Norfolk, Norfolk Museum Services, specifically in Norfolk Castle, Norwich Castle. And that will host some of the various spines that have kind of been discovered so far. I have no doubt that there will be plenty of wine there. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that they will be kind of in conversation with various kind of items from other museums that we hope to kind of acquire via loans that together will tell the story of the Gloucester and show to, to the public for the first time some of the fantastic finds that have been uncovered so far. Right. Sounds completely epic. Um, I, I love a nice East Anglian story anyway, being East Anglian myself. Um, and it sounds like a good excuse to come up and drink some wine. I don't know. wine. We keep talking about wine. I don't know. I'm going to have to go and open a bottle soon. Um, it sounds like the story's just getting started. I know from the discovery some years ago, now it's, now it's public, now it's out there, and now we're away, aren't we? We're, we're rumbling. How can we keep up to date with the story as it develops and what's happening with the Gloucester and how can we support the project? Um, so a website has been launched, which is www.gloucestershipwreck.co.uk. And that website uh, concerns the history of the, um, of the warship. And that's um, part of a wider historical research project, uh, which consists of Professor Claire Jowett and I, and uh, we're currently writing a kind of cradle to grave history of, of the Gloucester warship. And so if, if you'd like further information on the history of the ship, I'd recommend going there. You can also follow, follow us on, on Twitter. Our handle is Gloucester Rec, at Gloucester Rec. Um, and hopefully that will continue to be kind of busy and expand in the future. As to how you can support, well, a good start will be next year when, when the exhibition comes out, it, it will be around from February to July 2023 and uh, I obviously would love everyone to come and see how fantastic the Gloucester truly is. Um, a trust, as, as already mentioned, a trust is also in development and any kind of donations or funding for that I'm sure would be greatly appreciated to continue work on the Gloucester. Um, 
a, a charity will be set up for that. And currently, the University of East Anglia, working under its own charity, is holding donations to the cause. Fantastic. Well, it goes without saying that we will be there the minute we are allowed in to come and see this stuff. I think the three of us will be be down there to to come and check it out because it really is just the most exciting discovery. You would be more than welcome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Benjamin Redding. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you to Chris Sams for being our our boaty expert enthusiast naval nerd. <laughs> Thanks, it's nice to get invited out. Naval historians don't get asked to parties. <laughs> There's a reason for that, Chris. <laughs> it might just be me. <laughs> and thank you, Lockie. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section thank you so much for your continued support we really appreciate our listeners and supporters so make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.